0: Life. So, I've entitled this message The Altered Life. The Altered Life, in the sense that we're going to talk about sacrifices being placed on the altar, and the reason for that is because when you encounter Jesus, you're never the same again. Uh, and as uh, one of our band leaders, Rebecca, said, on the standalone Sunday, we decided to sit down. So, I'm going to do exactly that. Uh, sure, why not? A bit of variety never hurt anyone. Okay, so The Altered Life. So, what I want to talk to you about is the idea of sacrifice. And before you get freaked out and think, I knew it, these guys are a cult. Listen, no no hooded character is going to appear with a ghost. No living animal sacrifice is going to happen. Don't worry, you're fine. We're not going to pass on a cup of blood for you to partake in, okay? We're talking about the metaphorical sacrificing of our lives, self-sacrifice. And by definition, by the way, self-sacrifice, to be self-sacrifice, has to be a voluntary sacrifice of self. It's not something you can be coerced into, forced into. By definition, if you're manipulated into sacrifice, it's not a self-sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of self. So what we're talking about is, maybe you're here today or watching online, and you've wondered, why do Christians do crazy? Why do they serve? Like, I mean, look around this room. Look at all this equipment. Weren't our band outstanding today? Come on. What about our production team, our kids team, our welcome team, our next steps team? In the background, our pastoral care team, our prayer team. Our we have all these people who are volunteers, who get paid nothing but are constantly sacrificing time and energy and resource to every one of you who give every single week financially to make all this possible. Someone's got to go, why are you people doing this? It makes no sense. Of course it does if you're looking at it without understanding what self-sacrifice is all about. So what I want to do is give you a breakdown of why we do, why we, why we choose to lay down me for the sake of lifting the lifting up uh, of us. And I want to just give you a kind of an overview before we jump into our text. This isn't just a cute thought. This isn't just a nice addition to what we do as Christians. It's actually core to the message that Jesus gave us as the church. Because in John's Gospel, chapter 13 and verse 34, Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. Right? Which, okay, I can, I can, I can kind of tolerate people. I can show a bit of patience in traffic. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I cannot lose my mind when I'm trying to get into Krispy Kreme and there's a long queue. Like, like I can do that. But, but Jesus said, love one another as you think you should love one another. He says, as I have loved you, there's a standard, so you must love one another. And by this, by the way, everyone will know you're my disciples. Not by condemning people, not by judging people, not by shouting at people, not by soapbox at the corner people, but by our love for one another, the world would know that we are his disciples. In 1 John 2-3, verse 16, uh, John, follower Jesus, wrote this. This is how we know what love is. And so he goes further, he defines what that love is. He says, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, which we'll get into in a second, and therefore we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This laying down, this sacrificing of our life, isn't just a, a necessary part or component of Christianity. It's one of the core distinctives of the Christian faith, that to be a Christian, it's not convenient, it's not easy, it, it isn't always the most popular thing to do. Hello, you with me in the room? But there is a price to be paid, and that price that we pay is actually following in the footsteps of Jesus, who paid a price for us. Why? Because Scroll back the clock to the Old Testament. King David, a very significant character in the Old Testament, one of the most important characters in the leadership of the nation of Israel. He shows us in 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, that sacrificing something to God always costs us something. And the reason why it costs us something, is so important, is because when we sacrifice something that is easy for us, it's not really a sacrifice. It's convenience. And convenience is different to sacrifice right convenience is next slide guys come on convenience is different to sacrifice because convenience is easy convenience is oh if it suits me if i have time if i have the resource or ability i will do it but by definition for something to be sacrificial it costs us something in this crazy story king david he's the king of the land he wants to buy a piece of land to actually offer a sacrifice okay so he wants to build an altar to offer a sacrifice and of course this uh, man he's obviously loves his king loves his nation he's a patriot he obviously loves god he says listen i'm not going to take any if you're going to take my land and you're the king you can take it first of all but if you're going to take my land and do something for god there's no way i'm going to allow you to pay for it like crazy of course but then david insists in verse 24 he says i insist I'm paying you for it because, here's the line, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. What an amazing thought. I will not sacrifice to God that which costs me nothing. And the interesting thing about this whole idea of sacrifice is that when we think of, You know, great heroes, heroines, people in maybe your life—a grandmother, a grandfather, uncle, auntie, a dad, a cousin, a friend, a leader, maybe a teacher, maybe a nurse, doctor. Like when we think about people who are worth being celebrated, worth being emulated, worth being talked about, what one of the things that makes them worth being is because usually they're doing things in laying down their lives that is sacrificial for the benefit of the lives of others. One famous example is, of course, Mother Teresa, who devoted her life to the serving of the poor in Calcutta, India. And when she was asked about, imagine, what what sacrifice to you, Mother Teresa? She said this, and I quote, A sacrifice must be real cost. It must hurt. It must require us to empty ourselves. Give yourself fully to God And he will use you to accomplish great things on the condition that you believe much more in his love than in your weakness. Isn't that amazing? Now again, if you're watching online, you're in the room, you're not a Christ follower thinking, man, that that sounds scary. I'm not saying this applies to you, because it doesn't. If you're not a Christian, or you're not a Christ follower, much of what I'm going to say does not apply to you. Because as we're going to see, it's not an obligation, it's a response to something that God has done for us. But in it is some truth, right? And, and, and don't forget, real cost and real hurt and emptying ourselves isn't always a negative thing. Listen, when I realized that um, the woman that I loved was gonna become my wife, I thought about the fact that now I have to marry this girl. How do you do that, right? Because usually you don't do that a lot of times. And so it's like, okay, well the first thing is you gotta buy a ring. Well, you ever, do you ever buy a ring for a woman? It costs money. It costs a lot of money. It costs me all my money. Because I walked into the jewelry shop and I was like, listen, you don't know this girl. I need to buy her the best. And of course, I can see the jewelers going, oh, you know, let me show you the best. It wasn't even in the cabinet, people. Step number one, if you're going to pose someone, you don't need to buy the best. Just buy the best you can buy, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, and so I spent months saving, working, I had to figure out you know, what her ring size was, you know, had to negotiate with my mother-in-law to find out all this information. And then I was in uh, Paris, France on a rugby tour, and I was like, I can't just give her a ring. I gotta, I gotta whine and, di-. like what if she says no? I gotta soften her up, do you know what I'm saying? I, I, gotta, woo- I gotta make sure she's, she's with me on this. So, so I went to this, this nice shop in France and I, and I bought a dress, everybody. I had no idea what her dress size was, but I basically went on from dress to dress going, okay, here's me, here's her, okay, here's me, here's her. Uh, yeah, that's probably it. Uh, and then I went, I can't just buy a dress. I've got to buy a pair of shoes to match that dress. So I went, uh, so when all my friends were buying, like, Man United jerseys, which are worth nothing right now, uh, and so on... Uh, <laughs> You know, I was looking for a pair of matching shoes. And then I had the dress, I had the shoes, and I'm like, you know what, no, no set is complete without some earrings. You with anybody? Come on. And so I got to go find this, this woman some earrings. So I come back, and I'm like, listen, I got you a gift. It's a dress, some shoes, some earrings. Hopefully it all fits. If not, don't wear it. Um, we're going to go for dinner uh, in the fanciest restaurant in our hometown. Let me tell you something. There was nothing fancy about our hometown, nothing fancy about a restaurant, but it was the fanciest thing we had gone. So brought her out. We had kangaroo for dinner you know which sounds really exotic but it kept hopping all over the place like stop skippy you don't have dinner here you know what i'm saying then we had death by chocolate which i thought you know a bit of you know is this the death of me what's going to happen tonight she's no clue what's happening and i'm like let's just go for a walk so we go for a walk and walk around this this hometown of ours which is absolutely beautiful never been to the town of carlo listen you're missing out in life Uh, And they just built a new bridge called Poppish Bridge. It was new, so it was clean. And so I figure now is as good a time as any. And right there on Poppish Bridge at 11 o'clock on a Friday night, I got down on one knee and I said, will you marry me? I'm there on my knee. Will you marry me, please? And of course, women always do this thing, don't they? It's a long, awkward silence. They go, as if they're they're breathing a respirator or something. It's like, I am not your wife you know it's like I'm standing there I'm like you know and eventually she starts crying I'm like oh no this is terrible pop this bridge my life is over I might just jump off this bridge uh, and of course by the grace of God she said yes everybody and one year later we were married and a whole bunch of years later we had loads of kids so be careful who you propose to um, but when I think about the cost when I think about the hurt in terms of having to be vulnerable and, and taking a real risk right come on taking a real risk that maybe I will be rejected, when I had to realize that it wasn't about me. Yeah. I look back and I don't, think, I don't think of that sacrifice as a pain. I don't think of that sacrifice as a loss because in that sacrificing of me, let me tell you something, I gained everything yeah. and she gained something. You know what I'm saying? I gained everything and she gained Gain some. so sacrifice isn't always this weird, you know, um, thing. Sometimes it can be a very powerful thing, and obviously motivated by love. So here's what i are going to do: we're going to take one verse, we're going to drill down in a very deep way, we're going to do an exposition of Romans chapter 12 and verse one. We're going to spend the rest of our time just breaking down this one verse, where the apostle Paul is writing to a church like ours in the city of Rome. <clears throat> And he's trying to explain to them this very tension of what does it mean to live in a free society as free people, but self-sacrificially laying down our lives for God and for each other. Here's the verse, verse one, read it together and then I'll break it down. It says this, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And again, if you're watching online in the room, you're not a Christ follower, some of the things I'm going to say will be helpful. But essentially, this is what Christianity is. Christianity is not religion. You can't be born into this. This is a choice that we make. And the reason why, by the way, if you are a Christ follower, the reason why we're talking about this is because as one wise scholar once said, the problem with living sacrifices is they have a tendency to crawl off the altar. You have a tendency to go, hey, I don't, I'm not really loving this sacrifice thing anymore. Maybe I'll just take a break or take a walk or take a hike. And we've got to be reminded that the best work of our lives comes when we're living the altered life, when our life is continually offered upon the altar. Okay, first one, therefore. So whenever you see therefore in the scripture, okay, and you think, what's therefore for? Well, if you go back and read chapters 1 to 11, you will know what the therefore is there for. Because they're for reasons. So Paul is summarizing 11 chapters of kind of philosophy or theology. Paul's explained at length and in great detail to the Roman church the theological and philosophical reason for why we are the way we are, for who we are, and for what we do. And now he transitions in verse 1 from philosophy to practicality. Because now there's, you know, every great theology, every great philosophy, every great theory for it to be great has to work in real life. Otherwise, we admire it, but we can't do it because it's not helpful. And so Paul tries to break it down into practical terms. He says then, second of all, I urge you. Now understand, urge is not an imperative. Imperative meaning command. It's an imploration, okay? I couldn't command my fiancé, you must marry me, because she would probably put her foot in my face. And I would have fallen off Paul Prince Bridge, and the king's men would not been able to put poor old Humpty Dumpty back together again. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously, it wasn't even an urge. It was, a, it was a humble request. But urging something is when, for example, maybe you have a friend who knows you online in the room, and I said, listen, you really got to come to Lighthouse Church. It's full of some really interesting people who talk about interesting things. And, and I really think it might help you, okay? And there's a difference, isn't there, between urging and manipulating? You're know, between really trying to, try to get to see, see the benefit of something and trying to command people. Paul is not commanding us, he's begging them. He's saying, Listen, guys, in, in, in view of what I've just talked about, I urge you. I urge you. Now, he says, In view of God's mercy. So, what's he, what's he urging us to do? He's urging us in response, in reflection to, in, 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 as a result of God's mercy mercy and that word view in the original greek language in which rome was written is actually not necessarily an intellectual thing but it's an emotional thing paul is is appealing not to their intellectual experience but their emotional one that that view isn't seeing it okay i can explain to you what we believe and i will in a few minutes what we believe as christians about the love death and sacrifice of jesus christ But if it's only ever an intellectual explanation and you only ever receive it intellectually, it can never change your life. Because God gave us a head and God gave us a heart. And for God to truly transform us, he needs both. Now don't get me wrong. We all know a few Christians who God's got their heart and not their head and they're stupid. Hello? And we all know as Christians that we sometimes can be stupid. Because we do stupid things. Because we're so full of passion and fire and love, and but we're not thinking that's not helpful. And so, Paul is saying, Hey, I'm explaining this to you in an intellectual way, but until you experience it for yourself, there'll never be power in it. See, Paul is using the angle of when he says in view, he means kind of like if you were to witness something. You know what I'm saying? Like if you were there on the day of posed, you'd be like, oh, let me tell you the story. And, and if you were there on the day of pose, or if you were in the room when one of my kids were born, it's not just like a, a factual explanation, right? You aren't just intellectually transferring the facts. You're emotionally conveying the feeling, right? Because you're a witness. You were in it. You were part of it. You felt it. That's why we pay money for rooms like this. Because when you come and watch 1917, you know what happened. Because in the history books, just Wikipedia, 1917. It isn't good, people. But we pay money to sit in a room like this. So for two and a half hours, we can emotionally feel something that switches us off momentarily from the craziness of our life and connects us to the core themes of humanity. Paul said, Hey, if you were to experience. if you have experienced god's mercy i'm urging you i'm urging you and it is god's mercy now what is god's mercy well in romans chapter 3 verse 23 paul tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god sin isn't a thing for certain people every single human being by definition being human come on we all like the scripture says like sheep have gone our own way. Paul tells us in Romans 6, 23, the penalty or the wage or the result or the consequence of us going our own way is death. Not just physical death, but a spiritual death. Romans 5, 6, we're told that God died. God sent Jesus into the world to die, not for Christians, not just for the church, but for the ungodly, the rebellious, the stubborn, the Irish. I mean, God sent Christ to die for people who don't even believe in him. I was one of those. And in Romans ten nine, Paul says that if we come before him, if we receive this mercy and confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, that he isn't just a man in a book, as Matthew said during worship, but actually this resurrected savior of the world, we shall be saved. Now, what is the appropriate, natural response to receiving this mercy? Well, when you really, ex- when you, ex- ex- you guys notice, if you're watching online or no Christian, Christians, the natural response to receiving God's mercy is that we want to offer something. You saw it in King David's story. Like, God has done something great for me. I want to offer something back. Like, whenever anyone gives you a great gift, you always kind of feel guilty, right? And if you don't, you got a problem. It's called narcissism, okay? When people give you a nice gift... You should feel humble. Like, I don't deserve it. Because here's the thing. By definition of being a gift and not a wage, you don't deserve it. I'm going to make sure in our kids' parents that we don't raise a generation of children who think they're entitled to everything they're given because they're not. Because they haven't worked for it. They haven't sacrificed for it. You have. And when you give a gift to your child, it's an expression of how much love and value you feel for them, and how much you want them to be empowered to live a great life. The same is true with our Father in heaven. By definition of being a gift, we can't earn it, we don't deserve it. But we do, in response, want to, want to do something back, right? And so, for us as Christ followers, us as Christians in this room, the reason why we offer ourselves our prayers, our time, our money, isn't because this is some weird cult and you can't, you know, like there's some weird ceremony you go through and we know where you live and we come visit you and beat you up at nighttime if you don't pay money. Like, come on, guys. That's ridiculous. The reason why we do is because voluntarily in view it is a response after experiencing and witnessing God's mercy. We want to give our lives away. When we observe God's mercy, we offer our mortality. Now, again, if you're not a Christ, follower, this makes no sense for you, and I get that. I'm not asking you to do that because you can't do this until you've first experienced this. That's why one of my pet peeves is when Christians put on non Christians a Christian expectation. Paul yeah. she wrote in 1 Corinthians, It's none of my business what people do outside the church. How people live their lives, what they believe in, what they is none of our business. What we're called to do. Is love them. What we're called to do is serve them. And what we're called to do is oftentimes sacrifice for them. And you go, where's the benefit in that? Well, the benefit for us as Christ followers is that we are following in the footsteps of our Savior. See, when we observe, when we experience God's mercy, the only natural response, real worship isn't a song. Real worship isn't coming to church. Real worship is the Lord, I give you my life. I give you every, And one of, my, one of my passions for us, guys, is that we don't build a church of convenience. where It's easy and, okay, it's 11 o'clock, I'll pop down, I can grab my coffee. And, and, and the reason why we're here is because it's convenient. Like, we want to make it convenient because we're real people with real jobs and real kids in the real world. I get that. So we want to make it as convenient as possible. But the reason why we do it isn't because it's convenient. It's because it's, we're called to it. You see? And so we offer our mortality as we, as we observe and experience God's mercy. Interesting how Paul then goes on to say, it's not just offering, when I say offering our mortality, I mean, he actually specifically says our bodies. Not our thoughts. My thoughts are with you, my prayers are with you. But offering our body. Why? Because as human beings, we're made of three parts soul, spirit, and body. You understand this? Our body is a physical part of our being that will one day go into the ground and be eaten by worms. Think of all the money you're spending on cream, on hair products, on nails. One day those worms are going to eat them all up. How sad is that? You know what I'm saying? And, and, and joking aside, if that's the human experience, we should all be manically depressed right now. Right? What? My goodness. But something in us, even if you're not a Christ follower and you're watching online, or in the, like we know in ourselves there's something more to me. There's something transcendent. There's something eternal. There's something that was before and will be after. It's why when we talk about our loved ones who are no longer alive, we talk about them oftentimes in almost like a present tense sense because then even though they're gone, we never, ever let go of them. And it isn't just their memory, right? There's something about the human spirit, what makes us us, that we understand is eternal. And our soul is made of our mind, will, and emotions. Our personality, our feelings, and all these things. You know, Paul is ultimately saying that, yes, God wants our spirit, God wants our soul, but but sometimes the hardest part of ourselves to give to God is our bodies. When it comes to relationships and purity, when it comes to stewarding what we put in our mouth, when it comes to the substances that we turn to when we're broken, hurting, and alone, when it comes to how we treat other people's bodies, because we have a responsibility there too, we're called to sacrifice our body. It's interesting because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul actually says in another letter to a church in Corinth, who's actually in modern day Greece, he says, um, you know, when it comes to this idea of receiving God's salvation, God doesn't just save our soul, God doesn't just save our spirit, God also saves our body. He, we're told, paid a price for our body." And therefore, First Corinthians 6.18, we should honor God's honor God. Sorry, we should honor God with our bodies. God redeemed your body. Now, maybe you're here today. You don't feel beautiful. Watch it online. You're one of those people like me who look in the mirror and you go, "Oh my gosh, how did my wife say yes to this?" You know what I'm saying? You don't have the highest self-esteem. Let's be honest. You don't like taking selfies. I don't. You know, and I and I wouldn't take a selfie if I were you either. You know what I'm saying? Like. We, 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 we struggle. How crazy to think that God loves us just the way we are. And God thinks not only your personality is beautiful, but God thinks your body is beautiful too. And God calls us as Christ followers to bring our body to the party, right? And to offer it as a living sacrifice. Now, the Greek root okay, of this term, living sacrifice, is purposely... And deliberately paradoxical, because by definition, let 's think about it, for something to be sacrificed, it must be dead. we sacrifice that which is dead, we kill it, and therefore it 's a sacrifice. but Paul is saying god doesn 't want you to die and be dead; God wants you to die and live again and die again and live again and die again and live again and, live again and die again and, and, and to continue in this paradoxical tension of being fully alive by always offering yourself in debt and obedience to god now again that isn't some weird religious term we know if you're married for five minutes that the key to a good marriage is asking yourself this question how can i love serve and sacrifice for my spouse the minute you flip it and go how can my spouse love serve and sacrifice me your marriage is dead And I get it, because I've been married a long time. We go through seasons where we're better and worse at that. But if we don't come back to that central principle of the fact that marriage is about giving myself away, not taking from the other person. Which, by the way, if you're in a relationship where one person is doing all the giving and the other person is doing all the taking, it won't work either. Eventually, it will break down, because you can't abuse someone like that. Marriage to work, at its core... It's about us giving ourselves. Now here's the interesting thing about sacrifices in a historical sense. Sacrifices were always messy. Can you imagine? The butchering of animals and blood and all the weird stuff that happened. But they weren't always accepted. Now you notice, know right? Because have you ever had a steak in a restaurant? I mean, are you, if you're a medium well person or if you're a well-done person, have you ever ordered a steak and it came out with a heartbeat? You ever had that experience? It's like, this, I can't eat this. It needs, it needs CPR. Do you understand what I'm saying? This thing is still alive. And I know some of you watching online, you're those crazy people. Like, the bloodier it is, the better it is. And my goodness, I pray for you. I mean, I don't know how you do it. I mean, I'm more of like a medium person. Like, like, like just, you know, cooked well pink in the middle, all the flavor, all the juices. I'm not a fan of cardboard. If I wanted to eat cardboard, I would just go down to the bin and grab some cardboard. So this whole thing of like char grilling, uh, you know, the steak is not really good. But we understand that sometimes just because a sacrifice is delivered doesn't mean it's always accepted. There there, there are standards for what makes something acceptable. Now, Paul is is connecting us to a really important Old Testament thought. And and the, the thought... And the, and the principle of atonement. I'm about to get practical and really technical, so stay with me for a few minutes, okay? The purpose in, of sacrifice. Maybe you've wondered, why was there the sacrifice of animals in the Old Testament? It seems so bizarre. And if you're vegan, this is one of the reasons why you're not a Christian, right? Because like, how does God, who loves us and loves all the bunnies and all the you know animals, how does he require the sacrificing of animals in worship? And the reason for this is because there existed at that time a principle called atonement, reparation. This is where, as human beings, like I said, we have fallen short of God's glory. Adam and Eve didn't just make a choice for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve made a, made a choice for humanity. When they said, God, we like you. You're not a bad guy. What you're doing is kind of cool. This whole earth thing has got potential, but we're going to go our own way that wasn't just for them, that was for all of us. And let's be honest, it's probably more of our default mode to go against God than go for God. Which, which when you step back and look at it, even from an intellectual perspective, that doesn't make sense. Why? Because so much of the Christian message uh, is, 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 is positive, right? Because we wouldn't live in this Western free society if it wasn't for Christian principles like the equality of all human beings. Like, Don't forget that when you look back at history, those weren't common trends. The reality for most of human history was people weren't equal. Not not just because of your skin color, but we have 700 years of history here that we won't get into because we've forgiven and moved on. But there, there are all sorts of social hierarchies and racial hierarchies and cultural hierarchies and the, and the norm for human history has been human beings leveraging their position and power and wealth to control, use, and abuse other human beings. And all of a sudden, the Christian gospel comes on and says, hang on a second, God created all men, all women, equal. Equal. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, come on, us celebrate that. I mean, if you believe in the equality of all people, that's, and that was before governments had constitutions, That was before William Wilberforce, even though he was a great Christian man, it was his Christian faith that inspired his standing up against slavery. That was before Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who of course was a Christian pastor, and his faith inspired his stand to one day have a dream. Long before any of these cultural Western norms, the gospel spoke about God's original design. Man, woman, black, white, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. We're all equal. But you see, and this is what I'm saying, my point is I don't know why we naturally run away from these things because they're good things. Generosity, loving others, forgiving others, these are all Christian themes. These don't come out of other religions. They come out of the Christian gospel. But we tend to have this thing in us that wants to book the trend and go in the opposite direction. That's fine, but there's a consequence. Like I was just telling my son last night, choices are never just choices. Choices are directions. What begins as a yes, no, ends up being a journey. Therefore, we should pay attention to our choices. Well, because of the fact that Adam and Eve and all humanity had strayed away from God, by definition, living outside of God's purpose, living outside God's plan, is sin against God. And we've got to get rid of this kind of stigma around sin because sin is just doing things that God doesn't want us to do. So, for example, racism is a sin. If you're a Christian... And you judge people because of different color, or a different gender, or come from a different part of the world. You are sinning. That is never okay, according to the word of God. Hey, greed is sinful. Pride is sin- like it's not like sin is like some crazy thing. It's like we got to realize that all these things are outside of God's plan and purpose for the world. And hey, when we don't do those things, our lives are better, our world is better, and we are better. That's why God designed it that way. And so because people strayed away and because would, you know, decided to pave their own path, God had to figure out a way to make them okay. Because how many of your good parents can't leave bad habits and bad attitudes unpunished? It does not help your children, parents, if when they're being cheeky and selfish and ungrateful that you don't deal with that. I tell my kids all the time, I say, kids, the reason why I'm disciplining you now is because I want you to learn this lesson on the bottom step of our house and not in prison. That there are limitations in this world. You can't have what you want, when you want, the way you want, because you feel like you deserve it. you got to work for some things. And there's standards, and there's limitations, and there's rules, and you must exist in this miniature ecosystem of our home. I'm not trying to be restrictive or punish them. I want the best for my boys. And I want the women to, who marry them to say, thank you. Yeah. Because not only does he understand responsibility, but he can wash a few dishes too. Come on, ladies. You <laughs> I'm saying? He can wash a few dishes too. And so we don't, God doesn't put limitations on humanity to punish or hold back. us because it's for our benefit. But when we step outside those limitations, because he loves us, there are consequences. And so atonement was this system of where and it wasn't the perfect system and it wasn't the long-term system. It was a temporary system before Jesus came to solve it all where people could come to an animal and there's this, this prophetic moment of where they put their hand, the high priest who put his hand on the animal and say, God, we're giving all our sin to you. We're putting all this sin to sacrifice. The fact, sacrifice is going to the altar. And as that sacrifice was offered, God covered up their sin. And very often that atonement animal was called the Lamb of God. You're going to see where I'm going with this. The Lamb of God. This Passover lamb that was sacrificed as a propitiatory sacrifice for all sin. You see, in the Old Testament, sin demanded that we be punished as criminals. But salvation delivers us the privilege of being children of God. The whole point of atonement was to point the way to Jesus. That one day we would have a Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world from everyone, from everywhere, from every time. Some of us here online in the room, we get confused. We think Christianity is about being a good person. Listen, Christianity is not about being a good person. Christianity is not about being religious. Listen carefully. The gospel does not make bad people good. The gospel makes dead people alive. The gospel literally transforms life. Like the gospel isn't some self-help thing that makes me more polite and more better and more tolerable to my friends and family. The gospel transforms my very core so in a sense as it comes to my identity i am now adopted as a child into the family of god and all the things that i was labeled and all the things i was called and all the accusations and mean words all fall off of me because i have a father in heaven who loves me unconditionally unconditionally you know that means this morning as we were getting ready one of our kids team walked up to me and just gave me a lollipop because all great kids church teams hand away Random lollipops. And I made a joke. It must be an unconditional affirmation. I said, why? So I haven't even preached yet. You don't even know if it's any good. It could be the worst sermon in your life, but you're giving me the lollipop anyway. See, God, God, isn't, God doesn't love us because of what we do. God loves us because of who we are. And, and that's made possible because when Jesus came into the world, he paid the price for our punishment. The reason why he was crucified was because a crucifixion was the penalty for people who were criminals. And the reason why he was punished wasn't just because he was falsely accused of being a false teacher, it's because he took on himself the punishment of all sin in the world. Here's a technical term, Jesus died substitutionally. Meaning he took our place in court. He paid our fine. He took on him the responsibility for the penalty of our actions. And because Jesus died substitutionally, We live sacrificially. The reason why we give ourselves, the reason why we offer ourselves, the reason why we serve and pray and go to parts of the world to help people, the reason why the church historically has always been the first to respond to crisis and need in the world is because when you receive the grace and mercy of a substitutional Savior who gave his life upon the cross, who even though he was sinless, became sin for all sinners, so that we who are sinful in Christ might experience the righteousness of God Man, all I want to do is offer myself to a savior who could love me like that. Paul says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. What does that mean? Holy, really quickly, <clears throat> basically has a sense of exclusivity. That when you offer yourself to your spouse in marriage, how many know that's exclusive? And how do you know it's not exclusive? You don't got a marriage. There's nothing wrong with being, with being exclusively someone else's in certain contexts. When it comes to our worship, when it comes to our offering ourselves, it's exclusively to God. It's holy, meaning it's separate. It's for Him. It's for, it's for Him. Why? Because, because anyone can do things when they're motivated by the greater good, as in we want to be good moral beings, but our service is motivated by a greater God. And our sense of mission and purpose is exclusively done for His honor, and his glory. Pleasing. You know, another word for pleasing is this idea of proper. Actually, the Greek word is the word logicus. It's where we get the English word logic. It's the logical, rational, sensible response to our worship. The logical way to having understood and experienced God's mercy is that we offer ourselves in worship. And worship always equals sacrifice. Because the kind of worship that is pleasing to God is a worship that costs us something. More than a song, more than a few bob, more than lifting a few pieces of staging, it's a life. Self-sacrifice is more than just a Christian value. It should be the defining characteristic of our worship. That when we stand and we say things, Lord, I want the real thing. Or the best is yet to come. They're not just—it's not Christian karaoke. These 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 statements, these proclamations, are coming from deep within us because we've we we've, we've offered our lives to Him as response to His mercy. Worship equals sacrifice. And again, just to clarify this, because sometimes you get confused, it's not that that our behavior—it's not—it's not the behavior of our demonstrated worship. You understand know what I'm saying? It's not that when we sing, that is worship. It's the idea that worship is something so much deeper. It's the idea that our worship is demonstrated in our behavior. We don't, we don't sing because we're Christian. You understand? We're Christian, therefore we sing. Our life is a song unto God. And essentially what that means is, is that Christian surrender and Christian worship is primarily evidenced and lived out through service. Service to God, service to one another, and service to the world. Worship in Greek means service. Let's put it together. Verse 1. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and logical act of worship. And what's so interesting is when you go back and study the Old Testament tabernacle, where these offerings would have been made, the metaphor Paul is using, there was no seats in the tabernacle. There was nowhere to watch church in the tabernacle. If you, didn't, if, you, if you weren't participating, you probably should have been there. Because worship is life. Worship is service. Worship is living to give and not living to get. The former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Winston Churchill said this way, he said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. And there's this crazy sense in where what God is asking us to do as Christians is to have a life, a great life, a fulfilled life, the best life. But how we attain that life is by giving up our life to him in continual, voluntary acts of worship and service as we give ourselves as living sacrifices. I wonder what it is today that is holding you back from living the altered life. I wonder what it is that is stopping you from fully surrendering your life to God. If you're a non-Christian in the room, maybe today it's your disbelief. Maybe it's your your doubt. Maybe it's your, your, your uncertainty. Maybe God has said, hey, I'm not asking you to give money or give your life or give anywhere. I'm just saying, would you take a risk and put your doubt on the altar and see what I can do. Maybe you're hurt and broken, been betrayed, let down, by others, maybe by God. And God has said, hey, would you would you take a risk today and put it on the altar? And if you're a Christ follower, what's your application? Very simply this. Sacrifice is a life of surrender which is always expressed in service. You can't talk about sacrifice. You can't pray about sacrifice. You do it or you don't. The altered life is a life where we, in response to God's incredible mercy, every single day put our lives upon the altar. And we say, God, not my will, but your will be done. In this relationship, in this business proposition, in this career choice, in this budget meeting, in this moment.